Uh, we're launching into a new series, Jesus, I've Got Questions, and uh, we want to try to tackle some of life's biggest questions with the scripture. What does God say about it? You know, we all, we all have questions, right? We, some of you have deep theological questions. Uh, some of you have questions about your past. God, why is certain things happen in my life? Some of you have questions about your future. God, where am I going? Some of you have questions about relationships. Uh, I remember one uh, young dad told me this week uh, that he was putting his young son to bed and he said, dad, I've got a question. Does Jesus do somersaults? You know, we all got our questions, right? And uh, so we're going to try to tackle these questions. But today I want us to deal with the most important question. The most important question that you must answer. And that is, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? And, and the person that is best qualified to answer this question is a man named John. So I want you to get your Bible. I want you to open it up to the Gospel of John. Right there in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Uh, that's where we're going to be. John chapter 1. You know, what you think about Jesus is the most important part about you. What you think about Jesus is the most important thing about you. Jesus is certainly uh, the most influential person in history. Uh, Jesus' influence has, has impacted uh, art and science and education and ethics and law and, and government. I mean, uh, Jesus' influence permeates all of our culture. I think that's why Time Magazine said, quote, Jesus was, quote, the most significant figure in history, end quote. But while he is the most influential person, he is probably the most controversial person too. Because there are many people that have different views about Jesus. Some people say Jesus was just a prophet. Some a good moral teacher. Some people think he was a myth. Some people think he was a heretic. Some people think he was a son of God. So who is Jesus? Even when Jesus was on the earth, he was misunderstood and there were lots of views about who he was. In fact, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And that still is a very relevant question. Who do you say that Jesus is? And so we're going to take a look at what John says. Now, why John? Because John was one of the first disciples, the first to follow Jesus. John was also the only one with Jesus when he was being crucified. Jesus gave John the responsibility of taking care of his mother Mary. John was the last living, lone surviving of the 12 apostles, the oldest one to live. But John was also closest to Jesus. You could, you could argue that John was Jesus' best friend. He was in the inner circle. He knew Jesus more intimately than anybody. And so here we have in the Gospel of John, uh, a, his understanding of Jesus. And, and John is writing this now. He's an old man. He's seen a lot of life. He's seen Christ. He's in ministry, the explosion of the church, the, the martyrdom of all the other disciples. And now here he is, an old man. I like to call him Grandpa John. And he is writing these words for us before he dies to give us his testimony about Jesus. And so we're going to take a look at, uh, over this series, we're going to be looking in the Gospel of John. But today we're only going to look at John chapter 1. And even then, only a few verses in John chapter 1 because there's so much in them. So in verses 1 through 5, John is going to talk about who Jesus is. And in verses 10 through 13, he's going to talk about what Jesus has done, 
Okay, so those are the two sections we're going to be working in. Who Jesus is, verses 1 through 5. What Jesus has done, verses 10 through 13. All right? So let's take a look at who Jesus is. Uh, John chapter 1, verse 1. Uh, this is the word of God. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through him, and apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. In him was life, and that life was a light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and yet the darkness did not overcome it. Now stop right there. When you get a resume, usually it will have the person's name on it, maybe some family information, and then basically their accomplishments. I would say that John chapter 1 verses 1 through 5 is Jesus' resume. It tells us a lot about Jesus in very few verses. It's what I would call theologically dense, all right? There's a lot in this. Every word matters. And so we're, we're learning here about who Jesus is. Look at verse 1 and 2 again. In the beginning was a word. The word was with God. The word was God. He was with God in the beginning. I want you to circle the term word there. See that? In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. See that? That is an important term. Let me try to explain. Heracletus was a Greek philosopher. He lived about roughly 500 years before Christ. He, he's often called the founding father of Greek philosophy. He predated Plato and Socrates. He influenced a lot of Greek thinking. And uh, he had several things attributed to him, one of which was a sense that the world is constantly changing. The world is chaotic and changing. It was Heraclitus that said, you never step in the same river twice, okay? This idea that the world is constantly changing and, and evolving and, and in some sense chaotic. And yet he also taught that there was something that holds this chaotic world together. There's something that keeps it from just pulling apart, something that created the world, something that holds the world together, something that gives it meaning and purpose. And he called that something, this impersonal force, he called it the logos. L-O-G-O-S, the logos. We get the word logic from, and it's translated here in the term word. It, it is the word. Now, this is significant here because... Of course, John is writing about who is Jesus. He's referring to Jesus here as the word. You'll see down in verse 14 that, that Jesus is now uh, the, being called the word here. And, and what is John saying? John is saying that just as the Logos created everything, just as the Logos it rules everything, just as the Logos is the original of all things, just as he holds all things together, that, that Logos, that impersonal force, has a name. And he is actually a person, and his name is Jesus. Incidentally, Heraclitus lived in Ephesus, ancient Ephesus. John, who is writing this gospel, is writing it from Ephesus. 
So he's pulling out a term that his people would understand and saying this creator of all things is Jesus. And look at what it says about him. He is the word, the eternal word. He was in the beginning. Now those phrases, those three words probably are familiar to you. If you've read the first three words of the Bible in Genesis 1-1, it starts off that way. In the beginning, right? In the beginning what? God created the heavens and the earth. So what John is saying is that Jesus is this eternal word that holds all things together and he has always been. He, he was not created. He was in the beginning. He, in fact, Colossians 1.18 says, Jesus is the beginning. This is, this is a, a, a attribution to Jesus' eternal nature. What he's saying is that there was never a time that Jesus was not, and there'll never be a time when Jesus is not. That Jesus has always been, and he is, and he always will be. He is eternal in nature. And he is the source of new beginnings. By the way, this is good news for us, right? Because uh, when a person comes to Christ, they experience a new beginning. You know, Jesus is the one that created all things. He's going to recreate all things. There's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. He's going to make all things new again. But you can experience it now. When a person comes to faith in Jesus, they become a new person. Not just a reformed person, but a new creature. The old is gone. The new has come. And so here is Jesus, right off the bat, he says that he is the eternal word and he's always been. Well, what was he doing before time existed? What was he doing? Just hanging out? What was he doing? Well, uh, we get a little understanding of this. He was with God and he was God. Now, how does that work? He was with God and was God. That sounds kind of like doublespeak. How can you be with God and was God at the same time? And this is where we understand that God, one God, is, is, exists in community, right? That God exists in his very nature in community. So that he exists, theologians have wrapped their minds around this and tried to come up with a word, and, and the word is Trinity, right? That he, God exists, one God, in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And that is what is referenced here. He was God, and yet he existed in community with the Father and in community with the Spirit. In fact, uh, you might say, well, Jesus never said that. Well, uh, yeah, he kind of did. <laughs> In fact, John was there with him in John 17, verse 5, when Jesus was praying, and he listened to these words. He said, now, Father, glorify me in your presence with that glory I had with you before the world existed. <laughs> he said, Father, you and I existed before the world. Anything else existed, and we existed in fellowship and in unity and love, and I'm ready to receive that glory again and be with you again. Listen, it's interesting, if Jesus, uh, if God exists in community, right, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, existing in fellowship and in love and in unity and in community, and if you were created in the image of God, that's why you desire love. That's why you desire unity. That's why you desire fellowship. That's why we were not created to be alone, but to be with others because it's part of how God wired us. And when you come to faith in Jesus, you step into an ultimate love and an ultimate unity and an ultimate fellowship that can never, ever be broken. That's why Jesus said, you love me, you'll love the, the Father will love you and, and your fellowship will be with us. See, it's, it's this sense of fellowship that we step into, ultimate fellowship, divine fellowship, eternal fellowship that we step into when we step into faith in Christ.
And so here we have Jesus. Who is he? He's the eternal logos, the eternal word uh, that holds all together. He's always existed. He always will. He's existed with, in unity and in community and love with the Father. And, and yet, look at verse 3. All things were created through him, and apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. <laughs> now, if the first two verses didn't blow your mind, all right, then let's get to verse 3. Hey, look around. Everything that you see was created by Christ. Everything that you see in this world was created by Jesus. Everything outside of this world was created by Jesus. Everything that is visible, even those things that are invisible, those spiritual beings created by Jesus. This is what the Apostle Paul said in Colossians chapter 1. Verse 15, just write that in the margin of your Bible, Colossians 1.15. It says this, in him, that is Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in by him all things hold together. That, that's this idea of the logos, right? That this thing that holds all things together, this thing is a person, and his name is Christ. And he created all things, and he sustains all things by his power. Now, if you were to ask a, a good Mormon who is Jesus, they would say, well, he was a man that attained to be a God with a little g. And you can attain to be your own God if you follow these certain steps. If you were to ask a Muslim who is Jesus, a good Muslim would say, well, he's a prophet, he's a man that became a prophet, uh, one very highly revered prophet in the Quran. But a man nonetheless. If, uh, if you were to ask a Jehovah's Witness who is Jesus, they would say, well, he, is, he was the first created being, uh, little God, again, little g, but first created being. If you were to ask a Jew who is Jesus, they might say, well, he's somebody who led a lot of people astray from Judaism. The thing that all those definitions have in common is that they all say that Jesus was created, right? That Jesus was made, that he was a human in the sense that he was a created man just like you and me. No pre-existence. I'm just trying to point out that's exactly what John is not saying. John is saying that Jesus was not created, he was and is the creator, that, that he, is, he is the beginning. He is the creator. He is the originator. He is the progenitor. He is the one through which all things come and who sustains and upholds all things. He is before all. He is over all. He sustains all. He rules over all. And, he, and there is no one like him. That is Jesus. But it, look, it even gets better, all right? If your mind isn't sore right now, get to verse 4. In him was life. In him was life. And that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness. Let's stop right there for just a minute. It says, in Jesus there is life. Think about it. If everything that we know and life as we know it comes from him, then he is a source of life. And so in Jesus is real life. You know, we live in a world that is dominated by darkness and death. 
Do we not? I mean, it's glamorized on TV and on movie screens. It is uh, reported on the news every night and on your phone, on your feed. It is, uh, it is celebrated, darkness of death celebrated every pro-abortion march. And that darkness and death leads to hopelessness. Just this last week, we heard the terrible news of a former Miss America winner that had it all. And yet she took her own life and stepped out of the window of her high-rise apartment complex in Manhattan. What a tragedy. What a terrible tragedy. I mean, she was beautiful, brilliant, wealthy, popular. See, this world says if you're smart, if you have a lot of money, if you are, uh, if you're good looking, <laughs> if you have that, you got life. That's life, man. And, and that's a lie. Because only Jesus can give you real life. He is a source of life. In him was life, John said. Only Jesus can give you life here, abundant life here. Only Jesus can give you eternal life after the grave. Look at it, it says, in him was life and that light shines and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness. Check this out, and the darkness did not overcome it. The darkness of our culture hates Jesus. The darkness of our culture is at war with Jesus. You don't believe that, just wear your Jesus t-shirt to work, all right? See what kind of pushback you get. You know, post a lot about Jesus as the only way and see what kind of pushback you get. It's just, it's just our culture has been, as long as Jesus says he's one of many, we got no problem, right? If that's, that's your path, that's great. You start to say Jesus is the only way, Jesus is God in the flesh. If you just preach John 1, 1 through 5, you're going to have a problem. And that is because the darkness opposes that light, wants to overcome that light. Even when Christ was here, right, the darkness tried to kill that light but could not kill him. The grave could not hold him. And listen, my friends, even now, uh, the darkness cannot overpower King Jesus. Now listen, look at, look at these first five verses. I've only given you five verses, folks, all right? Five verses. This is a pretty impressive resume. Would you agree with that? I, I don't think I've seen a resume by anybody else like this one. Right? The eternal word uh, existing exi with the Father in as God uh, in, and for all eternity, uh, the one that created all things, the source of life, holds all things together. This is who Jesus is. This is King Jesus. But then you get to uh, the next section and he talks about what Jesus has done. All right, that's who Jesus is, verses 1 through 5. Now, verses 10 through 13, what he has done. So let's take a look at that. Look at verse 10. He was in the world, and the world was created through him, and yet the world did not recognize him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name, who were born not of natural descent, nor the will of the flesh, or the will of man, but of God. 
So it starts off here, and he just says he was in the world. And you might say, well, how, okay, we just talked about this eternal logos that holds all things together. How in the world did he get into the world? Well, look at verse uh, 14. It tells you, the word became flesh. All right, the logos, this the eternal word, Hyacleus was thinking about, the, this force that holds all things together, he actually became flesh. And look at what it says. And he dwelt among us and we observed his glory, the glory of the one and only son from the father, full of grace and truth. This is nothing more than the mystery of the incarnation that God would become man. This is the mystery of the incarnation that uh, this cosmic word uh, took on flesh that Jesus was born of a virgin, that he was laid uh, in a manger. And it says that he dwelt among us. That word dwelt is a really cool word. It means tabernacled, all right? When the Israelites were traveling around in the wilderness, they put up a tabernacle, which is basically a portable tent. And, 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 and this is the same word here. He tabernacled among us. He put up a tent. What does that mean? He just stepped out of heaven and into time and, and he became a human that is a temporary dwelling right? We got tents we're in, right? Some of your tents are kind of wearing out. Some of your tents are missing hair on top, right? Jesus, Jesus dwelt among us in flesh. God in flesh. You see, why is that important? Because you can't reach God on your own, right? You can't, can't see him, can't touch him, can't, can't hold him, can't reach God on your own. Can't even know him unless, apart from his revelation to us, we can't even know him. And so what Jesus did was he revealed himself to us. When we could not get to him, he came to us. When we could not reach him, he reached down to us. And he came to us in human form. Philippians chapter 2. He did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, to be held on to, but took on the form of a servant, being formed in human likeness. What an amazing thought, right? We celebrate that every Christmas, but uh, it's a truth that's not just for Christmas, right? It's for all of us every day. That he came to us so that we could know him, so we could teach him, uh, touch him, so we could see him. And that's what John was saying. John was like, I, I saw him. That which my eye has seen, my, my ear has heard, what I, my hands have touched, this is what I proclaim to you, right? The word of truth. This is what John was saying. I was with him, guys. I saw him. I was an eyewitness, to his glory. Look at what it talks about his coming. It was a glorious coming. The glory of the only one, one and only son from the father. His coming was a glorious coming. It was a glorious coming. It was a coming that was um, anticipated by the patriarchs. The patriarchs looked forward to it. The prophets uh, prophesied about it. The angels declared it. The... Uh, <laughs> The wise men and the, and the shepherds marveled over it. History was split in two by it. This coming of the Son of God. This eternal word now with us. Amazing thing. All that has been prophesied and talked about is now come. And how did people respond to that? Well, let's look at it. Look at verse 11. It tells us, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Well, I don't get that. Number one, who is his own people anyway? Well, there he's talking about the people of Israel. I mean, after all, Israel was the one that had the covenants with God. Israel was the one that, that uh, had the prophecies. Israel was the one that, 
that had the patriarchs pointing toward the coming of the Messiah. Israel was the one that had the festivals and rituals and law that all pointed, all pointing to the Messiah. Surely they would be the ones to get it. They would be the ones to recognize, aha, that's him. I mean, there were specific prophecies about what town he was going to be born in, what time he would be born in, what his tribe would be, what his lineage would be, how he would die. I mean, all these details, surely they would get it, right? But they didn't get it. They did not recognize him. Why is that? Well, I think it's because that they... He wasn't what they were looking for. I mean, what they were looking for was a military leader that would come and throw off the yoke of Rome and, and kind of surge Israel back into its political prominence and greatness like under Solomon. But that's not what he came for. He didn't come to deal with their political problem. He came to deal with their spiritual problem. That's why Christ came. And Christ came... But they didn't recognize him. He revealed the Father, but they didn't recognize him. He preached the gospel, but they didn't recognize it. He demonstrated his power, but they didn't see it. He screamed out that he was the promised Messiah, but they couldn't hear it. Instead of receiving him, they rejected him. And this Jesus... This eternal word become flesh went to a Roman cross and on that cross he suffered. Surely they should have seen it then, right? Because every year the Jews have this thing called the Day of Atonement where there's this one lamb and the, and the priest puts his hand on the lamb and, and there's a conference of all the, all the sin of the people onto this one sacrificial lamb and he dies in the place of the people. They see this year after year after year after year. Surely they, when he's on the cross they would see, oh, he is the ultimate lamb of God who takes away our sins. Surely it would have dawned on them but they, it's almost like their, their eyes were veiled. He was crucified, spit on, abused. He was buried in a borrowed tomb. He came to his own and his own did not receive him. They just walked away. And you know what? Some of you are doing that very thing. Now I want you to listen to me. Some of you, you have heard the gospel many times. Either here or other places. You've heard the good news. That God loves you. That God created you to have a relationship with him. That Christ died for your sin. Out of love, he went to the cross. Out of love, he was crucified to demonstrate his love toward you. That he died your death. That he rose again. That he offers you new life. And you see it, but you say, you know, I don't really need that. Oh yeah, I believe that. Yeah, 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 I, I get that. But but you, you're really not receiving Christ. Maybe later, maybe another time, but you, are, you keep rejecting, you keep rejecting, you keep rejecting, you keep rejecting, and every time you do, your heart gets a little harder and a little harder, more callous, more callous, more callous, and soon there comes a time when you can't even feel the conviction of God anymore. And you may walk right out these doors and be lost and bent for hell because you have constantly rejected Jesus. But look at verse 12. He said, but, we need some good news here, but 
to all who did receive him, he gave the right to be children of God. To those who believed in his name, who were born not in natural descent or the will of the flesh or the will of man, but of God. In other words, what he's saying is that there are some that are going to hear the gospel and reject and say no, but there are other people that they hear and they see him for who he is, that he's the eternal word, that he's the one that created all things, that he's the one that brings light and life, that he is the one that came to us. He's God in the flesh and he went to the cross for me and all of a sudden that dawns on their mind and the spirit of God convicts them of their sin. It's like a dart going in their heart and they realize that I've sinned against this God and I need to be reconciled and, and and in that moment of simple faith, this miracle happens called the new birth. <laughs> Jesus called it that. He called it being born again, starting over. Not, not born like you were physically of your father, not of husband's will, the will of man, that's what he's referring to there. But a spiritual birth. You're born on the inside. You, you become a new person on the inside. And that's what God wants for you. And there may be some here today that as you hear these words, you realize, you know what, I've been saying no for a long time. But right now, I realize I need Jesus. September 21st, 1997, a young boy three years old, was abducted from his front yard while his mother cooked on the inside. When she finally realized he wasn't there, she quickly started to search and then of course panic set in. Her and her husband began to rally the neighbors to, to scour the area for their son and he could not be found. And this search broadened and continued and grew over the next several weeks and weeks, but after about three months of searching, the search began to wane and people began to give up hope. It was then that this father uh, pr uh, produced or made three banners. One banner, large banner, had a picture of his son on it. Another banner said, son, where are you? And another banner said, your father is searching for you. He put these banners on three poles and fixed them onto the back of his motorcycle and he began to just drive through the neighborhoods looking for his son and talking to anybody that would talk to him about, have you seen my son? Have you seen my son? He would widen the search to neighboring towns and, and, then, and then just kept broadening it out and he kept riding and kept searching, kept riding and kept searching, get this, for 24 years. He never quit. He never stopped relentlessly searching for his son. Multiple times he, he was hit on the highway. He nearly died, would just repair his bike and get back on it again. During that time frame, he was able to create an organization to bring awareness to abducted children. He actually helped dozens of other families who had lost their children recover their own children while his own child was missing. But then last year, in July of last year, he received a phone call from authorities that said his son had been found. That he was alive. He was actually in his mid-20s now. DNA tests were conclusive. It was his son. And when they met him for the first time, 
his mother grabbed a hold of him with tears streaming down her face. And she said, my precious, my precious, my precious. And that father grabbed him and he said, son, I've been looking for you all this time. Now, the reason why I tell you that story, that true story, is because that is a picture of the gospel. That you have a father that created you. And sin has abducted you and kept you far from him. But he has been on an all-out search for you. He sent his own son to die on a cross for you. And even now, the Spirit of God is wooing and convicting and drawing you, even at this very moment. Because he loves you. But you have to respond to him. You will either reject him or you will receive him. But you cannot ignore him. And I want you to receive him. I want you to receive him right now by faith. Because that's why Jesus came. And if in this moment the Spirit of God is saying that is you, then this is your moment to receive Christ. I want you to bow your heads with me for just a moment. In just a minute, I'm going to pray a simple prayer of faith. Asking Christ to forgive you and to come into your life. And maybe you're here today and you say, Craig, I don't know for sure, but I want to know for sure. Or maybe you know, I, I'm lost. But right now, as I understand who Jesus is, that I need him. Scripture says, when Christ is lifted up, all men will be drawn to him. And I've done my best to lift up Jesus today. But if the Spirit of God is drawing you right now, this is your time to respond to him. So in just a minute, I'm going to pray a simple prayer of faith. And I'm going to ask you, if, if you say, Pastor, I need Christ. I need to be right with God. I need to know for sure that I'm right with him. I don't want to put this on one minute longer. I know my sin. I need Christ. Then I'm going to ask you right now, no one looking around, just lift up your hand. I'm not going to call you out, but I will see you and I will lead you in a prayer right where you're seated to receive Christ. So just lift up your hand right now. Pastor, pray for me. I need Jesus in my life. Lift up your hand right now. Pastor, pray for me. I need Christ in my life. I need Jesus. All right. Thank you. Thank you. All right, lift up your hand where I can see it. Pastor, pray for me. I need Jesus. All right, thank you. I'm not sure. I want to be sure. I know I need Jesus. Pastor, pray for me. Lift up your hand right now. One last ch chance. This is it. Lift up your hand. Okay, you can put your hand down. If you lifted your hand, just pray this simple prayer with me. Dear Lord, I know I've sinned against you. I know I've gone my own way. But I believe Jesus died on the cross for me. And I believe you rose again from the dead. So I'm asking you, please forgive me. Come into my life. Make me new. I want to be your child. Today I turn from my sin and I turn in faith to Jesus and I want to follow you all the days of my life. Thank you for loving me. 
Father, I thank you for your grace and your kindness, Lord, that you did not leave us to ourselves, but you sent Jesus on a search for us. And Lord, those of us that are in this room that are, that are already children of God, we're just so thankful. I mean, just gratitude wells up in our hearts for all that you've done for us. Lord, we love you. We stand in awe of you. We worship you as King of Kings. Lord, help us be light this week to let your light shine in and through us in this dark world. Lord, we love you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.